Welcome. You have found us. This is the Riot Underground. This is where we get to speak with the instigators that are changing the world with disruptive technologies. Could not be more excited than to have Rod Goosen, the founder and CEO of Rogo, uh, in the studio with us today. Rod, welcome to the program. Thank you so much, Tom. It's, it's a pleasure talking to you again, and thank you so much for having me on your program. When you talk about disruptive technologies, you're working on, I think, one of the most interesting uh, spaces, you know, going into a place where traditionally there's not much tech, particularly when you think about tech as like electronic and sensor tech uh, to to solve a really growing uh, problem that, that we see not just in the U.S., but around the world. Um, I'm going to ask you to give a little bit of background on, on Rogo and, and what you're doing here in a moment. But before we do, this is an audio program. And we'd like to give those that are listening at home a little bit of a visual of who, who they're hearing this story from. So one day there's going to be a documentary that's made about the amazing company that you're building. If you I had so. a chance to cast yourself in that documentary, who would you want playing the founder of Rogo? Um, I think if I had to answer that just off the top of my head, I, I think I would choose probably Matt Damon because he, he seems out of, out of actors that I know of, he seems fairly down to earth and uh, kind of um, a little bit hum, a little bit humble, I guess you know for, for his yeah. position. And and uh, he just seems to be uh, he seems to portray like a, a real world version of who somebody could be, as opposed to the glitz and glamour version. And glitz and glamour is not me. <laughs> yeah, no, no, I get it, and but also not. Uh, not afraid to tackle a big problem and maybe be the one solving a problem behind the scenes. So uh, I love the selection. That said, I've, uh, you know, I've hyped a little bit. Tell, tell our audience what you're, what you're working on. Sure. So we make small, portable, lightweight, satellite, and very soon LoRa enabled devices that allow wildland firefighters and other first responders who work in remote, austere, or cellular denied areas with the ability to gain access to real-time scene situational awareness information, tactical communications, and collaborations so they can mitigate the disaster faster and save more lives. It seems like, you know, not a few weeks go by before we hear about significant wildfire problems, uh, whether it's in the Western U.S., whether it's up in Canada or around the world. Uh, obviously, everybody knows about what happened in Hawaii recently. You right. know, tell us about this problem and how did you get involved in the space? This, my quest really started in 2013. Um, as background, my brother is a wildland firefighter. He's been a wildland firefighter for 28 years now. And so in 2013, there was a fire outside of Prescott, Arizona. It was called the Yarnell Hill Fire. In the Yarnell Hill Fire, 19 Granite Mountain hotshots died it, there's no easy way to say this they were all burned alive and they were burned alive due to a lack of situational awareness and poor communication and so when that event happened i was horrified confused and honestly a bit pissed off of how how could these 19 men die you know for what reason really why and so i called my brother who i mentioned you know he's, he's been a wildland firefighter for years and i asked my brother derek how the hell could this happen? How could an incident command not know where they were located at within the fire incident? How could they not warn them that an outflow boundary, which is like a cold front, was blowing the 
wind and thus the fire towards their position very, very quickly. How could they not warn them? My brother told me, Rod, we are still using paper maps, compasses, and two-way radios in wildland firefighting. That's it. That's all we have. And so when he's deployed on a fire scene, my brother also told me more than 90% of the time he's out fighting a fire, there's absolutely zero cell phone coverage. So they still use these archaic tools, paper maps, compasses, two-way radios, and they don't know where other people are at. So I, you know, I asked my brother, like, how do you know where you're at? He's like, well, we, we have paper maps. We, we all carry our cell phones, even though we work in these cellular denied areas. And we carry our cell phones for one reason. It's because they, we store electronic maps on them if we're not carrying paper maps. And so where are we at? Well, I think I'm two miles from peak A and about three miles from peak B. So you triangulate our position. Obviously, that's not accurate and it's not effective. And so we're trying to bring efficiency and effectiveness to wildland firefighting. Talk about what situational awareness can look like with the kinds of technology that, that you've put together. I imagine it's more than just the firefighters knowing where they are. Sure. It's really the firefighters knowing the firefighters knowing where they're at, knowing where they're at in relation to the fire. In other words, where the fire's at, how fast the fire might be moving toward their current location what the wind speed, wind direction, and the relative humidity is doing in that particular area, because wind, weather is everything in wildland firefighting. So wind speed, wind direction determines how fast, where the fire is going to go and how fast it's going to go there. Relative humidity informs firefighters how fast things are going to burn. So that's also an important piece of knowledge. The other thing that we're doing besides providing the aforementioned was the ability to communicate and collaborate tactical efforts at the edge. And so now today, you know, Tom, you might be a bulldozer crew right around the corner from me. If I'm a hand crew, hand crews are always on foot. So maybe I need help drawing this fire line before the fire arrives to our location today. Now, I don't know that you're just around the corner from me with our devices. You'll be able to look at the map, see where exactly where I'm at, see where the fire is projected to be within a certain period of time, maybe 20, 40, or 60 minutes in the future, and then see you in, oh, Tom's right around the corner. I'm going to contact Tom. Tom, can you send a bulldozer over here to help us draw this fire line a little bit faster because we can't get it done in time before the fire arrives. That sort of tactical collaboration today is not possible. With Rogo's devices, it is possible. So tell us more about, about the device. It sounds like you're doing more than just like going to the internet for a weather report, right? You're collecting real-time data. True. And so we have, there are two different types of firefighting teams. This is important to note, like paint the picture. There are hand crews. Hand crews are always on foot. And then there are task force leaders. Task force leaders are usually in a vehicle where power and weight aren't so much of a problem. For the hand crews, power and weight is a big problem because they're, you know, everything they carry, they're always already carrying about 80 to 100 pounds of weight on their backpacks. So they need something that's small, portable, lightweight. And so our devices are these devices that are about the size of a child's lunchbox now, but we're miniaturizing those. We're in the process of miniaturizing those to about the size of two smartphones stacked on top of one another. And so with that device, we have satellite enablement, but we are also introducing mesh networking capability. So, you know, if we're line of sight, you and I, Tom, 
we're line of sight will use the 900 megahertz mesh networking connectivity to speak to another. But maybe I need to speak to Joe, who's on the other side of the mountain, not line of sight. So for them, our devices automatically know how do I communicate with everybody? You know, between Tom and I, I can communicate over LoRa. Over to Joe, who's on the other side of the next ridge, I need to communicate with him over satellite since he's not line of sight. So we can get better device, get better situational awareness information and tactical collaborations with our devices by using either that combination satellite or mesh network. And pretty soon we're also going to introduce uh, band 14 cellular. That band 14 is also known as FirstNet. So that if you happen to be in an area of cellular connectivity, then we can use that uh, as well. So least cost routing methodology between 900 megahertz, cellular and then satellite so now you've got the ability to know where your people are where your assets are you know sensor data like wind speed wind direction at a very local uh point etc etc that's a lot of information that can be brought to bear that wasn't there before is it on the incident commanders all to figure that out or do you additionally (laughs) provide guidance analytics etc so we Provide this and provide the connectivity means between remote crews. And then for the task force leaders, like I mentioned, they're in vehicles. Incident command is always in a covered area. So for task force leaders, we have a 700 kilobit full IP solution. And so hand crews with their lower bandwidth drop blocks can send data over LoRa or satellite or cellular. And then that same data populates on the task force leaders incident management platform and the incident commander's platform. So everybody knows where everybody's at. The left hand knows what the right hand is doing and we can have uh, more collaboration going on. So as far as platforms go, we are platform agnostic. I don't care whatever whatever incident management platform you're using, whether it's ATAC, Intera, Rhodium, any of those we can can use plug you know plug in our data via api into those platforms so the incident commander usually makes the call on which platform which incident management software platform is going to be used on any one particular fire and so we want to integrate with any of them because we just want to get data to those people who are fighting the fire on the front lines so they can mitigate the mitigate that faster and do it in a more safe uh, and tactically collaborative way it's really interesting. Talk a little bit about the business side. Is this something that uh, anyone listening should reach out and figure out, like, how do they have this already at the ready within their, uh, you know, their organization, whether it's a firefighting unit, whether it's a state government, et cetera, or is this something where once an incident starts, you can quickly deploy new tech kind of, kind of how does that side of the, the operation work? Right now, today, we're deploying devices out to uh, really uh, champions who are who are early adopters of, of technology. And so we're getting the word out from them. Once, you know, down the road in the future, we intend to have a cache of these devices that can be very rapidly deployed at uh, to a fire scene when a new fire incident starts. And I am doing a lot of talking about wildfire because wildfire is where my heart is and that's where our first that that is our beachhead market but do know that all disaster response whether it's earthquake tornado hurricane all those sort of different disaster response types 
still rely basically on the same archaic technology that wildland firefighters use. And so since we've launched our devices, we have had a lot of initial interest from others who fight natural disasters and other types of hazards in remote areas. And that does include FEMA, Border Patrol, and the National Guard and others. We, I can, we can monitor, you know, remote utility lines like for PG&E since PG&E's power lines have started uh, the most disastrous fires in California. We can, we can monitor their power lines. We can tell them precisely when they, when and where they went down at. That's not an ability they have today. So there's a lot of different applications. Everything from, like I said, first responders to adventure travel, insurance industry. There, there's a lot of commercial applications to this as well so yeah anyone managing timber does control burns i imagine this is an important tool for that those kind of things to keep them controlled yep yeah so for logging or like controlled burns uh, controlled burns is actually a perfect scenario for uh, for rogue device deployment because if you're getting used to using our devices having it in a more controlled environment like on a controlled burn is uh, a perfect place for you to get familiar with our devices before you need to go deploy them on a mega fire. One of the things that is interesting to, to talk about, we have a lot of entrepreneurs and investors and other people that, that listen into this program. We run startup accelerators. We work with a lot of early stage companies like we've worked with Rogo in the past. Um, you bootstrapped this venture for a long time, put a lot of your own uh, sweat equity and, and cash money into this, but you're at a situation now where you're beginning to talk with investors and leverage some government funding. If somebody out there was interested in getting involved, what's the best way to reach out to you? Reach out to us. Uh, the easiest address is info at rogocom.com. And um, they can also get on our website, which is rogocom.com and uh, use the contact us link to send an email. And I'd love to engage in a conversation with anybody who's either interested in our using our devices or possibly interested in investing with us. We have a mission, not just to save lives, but we have really an environmental mission. Also wildland fires emit billions of tons annually globally in CO2 emissions more CO2 emissions, the hotter our environment gets, the hotter and drier our environment gets, the more wildfires we have. It's a downward spiral. So we do have a large, you know, it's not just the human component of saving lives and saving property, but environmental component of saving CO2 emissions that we can extinguish fires more efficiently. And that CO2 helps uh, reduce global warming. Yeah, it's fascinating. It's uh a multi-pronged but very kind of intertwined set of problems that, that you can address. And it's very much so. really about creating real-time data and then being able to communicate it. Uh, I heard something, I'll ask you to confirm for me, that a lot of these fires are so powerful that they actually can create their own weather. So if you want to monitor the weather, you actually have to do it on site with devices like you can, like you create. They do, yes. Yeah. So wildfires absolutely do create their own weather. And I would invite, if anybody has never seen a fire tornado, it is one of the damn scariest things I've ever seen in my life. If You can YouTube uh, fire tornadoes or fire whirls, as they're also called. And they are, you know, just the same way a tornado forms from, from convection. This the, In a wildfire, the same thing occurs, except it is literally a, a a spinning 
wind wall of flame and they are very scary. There was a, a fire tornado in California this last um, last fire season that had, if I recall right, it had the same wind speed and dist um, destructive capabilities as an EF4 tornado. So it, pretty significant. And they, wild, wildfires do absolutely create their own weather. They, a, a pyrocumulus cloud is another scary looking. It's you know you've seen the cumulus cloud, cumulus cloud, nice cotton ball looking. Well, this is all black because it's from the ash and soot of a fire. But those pyrocumulus clouds act just like regular clouds in that they create their own lightning. And so, what happens when a lightning strikes? Well, you get another fire. So, again, that is a, another downward spiral where where the longer a fire operates, especially under certain temperature conditions, now we're creating clouds that are, can create fire tornadoes or lightning, which again, starts more fires. So it's it's better just to um, get a handle on it <laughs> before it gets out of control and, and these large weather anomalies start occurring because of it, yes. I will definitely look that up. I was not familiar with fire tornadoes, although that sounds like the great name for a Matt Damon movie. Uh, yep. <laughs> throw that out there in case any studio executives are listening in. Um, <laughs> let's talk a, a little bit more about communications. As you yes. said, most of these challenges are in places where you just don't have cellular connectivity, right? Correct. So you've got satellite, if you can get a clear line of sight to the sky, you're leveraging LoRa to develop out these mesh networks. What's the next piece in creating kind of robust and maybe redundancy in communications? Uh, is you know something like a Starlink a possibility? What else are you looking at from that connectivity point of view? From a connectivity point of view, the reason we're using for our satellite connectivity, we're using Iridium. The reason we're using Iridium is Iridium transmits on the L band of the radio frequency spectrum. I have it on very good authority from uh, somebody high up in, in military command that that Starlink's frequencies, because they're so high, they do not penetrate either deciduous or carnivorous tree canopy very well at all. Whereas Iridium's L-band, which is a lower frequency than Starlink uses, does penetrate both deciduous and carnivorous tree canopy well. So I'm agnostic as to what you know satellite provider we use. If you have a clear line of sight and you want to use Starlink, great, use it. If you're in a forest tree under tree canopy, you better stick with Iridium because of the lower L-band that frequencies. So I don't mind, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm software platform agnostic and I'm satellite uh, system, communication system agnostic. I just want to get the data to these firefighters so they can save more lives and put, put out the fire faster. If somebody finds it, you know, applicable to use Starlink, maybe a task force leader in a remote area out in his vehicle, if he can use Starlink, great. I don't have a problem with that. Rogo provides the software that makes our devices run over satellite. We have a lot of specialized software that we do for some very special data packaging uh, to get information sent over satellite in an efficient and effective manner. But I see us going more towards the software side where we're using those, that, those data pieces to inform and create better data predictive analytics. Where is the fire going to be 20, 40, 60 minutes from now? Where can we pre-position human and non-human firefighting resources to do things like draw fire lines or protect 
high value structures, homes in a particular area before the fire's arrival. How do we best communicate and tactically coordinate slurry drops along with hand crews who are on the ground so that um, we can make sure slurry drops are more efficient, more effective, more targeted, and that they don't miss their spot since slurry bomb bomber pilots are flying through thick, heavy smoke and can't always see the drop zone. These sorts of things we have Rogo's building solutions for so that we can create a, a fully communicated tactical effort at the edge. And do you see a future where this technology isn't just carried in along with the other 80 to 100 pounds of gear, but it's already been pre-deployed and, and we have truly smart forests that are collecting data all the time? That's very possible. Rogo did just make a, a sale of one of our devices to specifically monitor wind speed, wind direction, relative humidity, and dry bulb and wet bulb temperatures for a fire management officer, also known as, F as an FMO, up in Washington State. So he can get the same data off our devices, which cost a couple of thousand dollars, that he normally would use a $30,000 ROS or remote access weather station to to get that same information. So because we can provide that data at a lower cost, in the future, yes, I, I would like to envision seeing our devices deployed for monitoring. And then when a fire does break out, you already have a network of sensor data, a network of communications paths where the communications is, is instant, it's ubiquitous over a certain area, and we can provide data and communications coverage to first responders very rapidly. That certainly would make sense from an efficiency and effectiveness standpoint. And if we can get uh, our devices deployed faster, that would be an ad that would be a big advantage. Uh, one of the advantages to the Rogo system now is that we are instantly deployable and we don't have to wait for VHF repeaters to be set up along, uh, you know, along rid multiple ridges in a large fire scene and so forth like that. So because we our devices are instantly deployable, we feel we can provide better safety and better communications immediately. And on initial attack of a fire, that is the time of the largest fire growth. It was also the time when the most line of duty deaths occur in wildland firefighting because of their lack of communications infrastructure. I really love what you're doing. It's transformational technology. Uh, Thank you, Tom. As we wrap up here, you know, what, what is it that you're most excited about as you look to the future? And, and maybe what is the biggest hurdle that, that still needs to be left over? What I'm most excited about in the future is making a positive difference for really everybody from the amount of taxpayer funds we spend on fighting wild wildland fires to the air quality that we breathe, especially here in the West where when wildfires are prevalent. I'm most excited about trying to make a positive difference for our society in, in many different facets, you know, from CO2 emissions to, 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 to the financial savings that be, can become of it to saving lives. So I'm most excited about that. The biggest hurdle to obtaining that is financing. We have the technology that we need today to make a fully integrated, small, portable system. It's just a matter of funding to, to get that in. And with the amount of money that our government spends, just the U.S. government spends on wildland firefighting, a fraction of that could solve for all of these problems that they are 
suffering from that prevents them from putting out wildfires faster. Yeah. So it has a big ROI to it. <laughs> so anyone in the public sector listening, get those RFPs out there. You know, funding there you doesn't go. have to look like investment. It can just look like sales. Get get the RFPs out there. As we mentioned before, investors online, there are opportunities to get on board to a rapidly growing and really exciting company. Uh, thanks so much for, for joining us today, Rod. I look forward to having you back on. Uh, you know, Maybe a year from now, we'll see a headline about the 19 firefighters whose lives were saved by your technology. That is my ultimate goal. And if uh, we can achieve that, that saving of lives, we would be, I would consider us a, a, a definite, a definite success. So thank you so much, Tom, for having me on your program today and uh, for allowing us to get the word about Rogo out. Thank you very, very much. Wonderful. Thanks. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Riot Underground podcast. This podcast is created and produced by Riot Studios with music by Scott Jackson. Riot is a nonprofit focused on economic development through the Internet of Things or IoT. By capturing emerging markets, producing educational events and conferences, and accelerating startups, creating IoT opportunities locally, nationally, and globally. Learn how to engage by visiting us at riot.org or sending us an email at info at riot.org.